and welcome to A Nightmare on Fear Street, a monstrous podcast about all things horror. If you like what you hear today, then you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Today, we're talking about the classic 1978 Halloween. Oh, well, today we are joined by Ben Witt. Hi! I can Hi! Hi! <laughs> I'm so excited. First time, long time. I've listened to, I think, just shy of every single episode of the podcast. I, I, I'm a big fan, so it, it's... Uh, it's it's great to be here. I'm very excited, and uh, I mean, I I know we'll talk about the movie, but uh, I love this movie, and so I'm double excited. I have I have an excuse to talk about this film. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. Um, we all went to school together, so it's like a vicious circle yeah. of what are we still doing with our lives? Let's all hang out. Um, <laughs> um, but tell our audience that is not you about yourself. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my name's Ben. I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm, um, I guess, an artist of sorts. I, I am in a, a band called The Way Way Back. It's a pop punk band. I host some podcasts, um, Disney Plus Plus Ben Plus Friends, which is the stupidest title for a podcast ever, um, which is my Disney Plus podcast where I talk about Disney Plus stuff with friends. And then I've also got a podcast called Ope Radio that is a, it's now weekly and it's a Kansas City and Lawrence, Kansas local music radio hour, basically. And uh, yeah, I, I write and I act and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to all of the jobs that don't pay any money, basically. That's like my fetish is, hey, can I work really hard uh, and then not really get paid for it? I love that. <laughs> How we all went to school together. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. What do you do with a BA in English? It sucks to be me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we will get links and social medias to all of those things you're doing. Oh, it's a lot. Yeah. Yes. And we'll put that up when we post. But also tell our listeners, I was going to say viewers, they can't view us yet. In their uh, hearts. Yeah. No. yeah. Please tell our <laughs> listeners <laughs> what kind of horror movies you like. Um, what are you looking for in a horror movie? What are your favorites? Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start with favorites just because um, I think that Alien is it's just like an, a perfect film. I absolutely love it. I love space. Uh, I love science fiction and a big Star Wars fan. So I really love Alien. And um, I hold it as kind of a gold standard. Uh, I'll, I'll tip my hand a little bit and say that the movie that we watched this week, Halloween, is also one of my favorite films, as well as its, um, shall we say, spiritual sequel that came out just a couple years back. It's one of my favorites as well. I want, out of a horror film, um, I want a movie that's going to... There's, so there's two kinds of horror films I really like. <laughs> then my favorite favorite are going to really challenge me as a viewer and make me question how I feel about violence, how I feel about life and death. I want a movie that is going to make me feel uncomfortable and think about those sorts of things. Or I want the exact opposite. I want like the later Friday the 13th movies where it is just like popcorn nonsense. And it's like, oh man, he killed that guy with a wood chipper. And like, uh, I, I so I, I, strangely enough, my favorite kinds of horror movies are one or the other. I either like the dumbest popcorny, like Freddy saying some stupid tagline, you know, like like there's more than one way to skin a cat, bitch, and then like uh, skins a cat. I don't know what he does. It, those movies are insane. Um, and and then like oh, the other side is I like really cerebral, really small, again challenging movies. I like a movie that's gonna say something about violence or say something about you know existence and uh good and evil i, I think 
that horror movies are fun because they can tackle kind of biblical themes. They can tackle really big ideas in a way that is kind of disarming and uh, repackages the thought. Does it make sense? I don't know. Right. Well, I mean, I think, I, no, totally. I think horror is the epitome of good versus evil. Like yes. I mean, you're literally rooting for typically the final girl to live or sometimes her best friend. That's usually where I'm at. I'm sure. like, I want Helen Shivers to live, but you know, we can't always live. And, uh, <laughs> and as you say that, I think that what's interesting about maybe that second category of movie I'm talking about is that sometimes you actually root for the monster. Like there are in, in those more popcorny ones, you're actually kind of like, yeah, I kind of want Jason to kill these dumb campers, you know? And, <laughs> and like, it does a weird dark thing in your brain, but I can't explain why, but it, it definitely hits the pleasure center when I watch those. The other horror thing I really like, and I don't want to derail us because I know we have such a good movie to talk about, but I, I love vampires. I, I think that like when vampires are done right, vampires are one of my absolute favorite like folklore fiction creations ever. I, I just love the idea of, I mean, it seems so relevant in our current political climate, the idea that there are beings that feed off of stealing from others and, and like and like absorbing the energy of others in in predatory ways it, it's it's like uh it i don't know but to me vampires are just like totally fascinating and i love i don't think they're real uh, for the record. uh but i but i i Maybe do they are. so interesting and i love them um yeah especially when like i don't know like twilight's not my favorite i know it's easy to like you know, but but like like interview with the vampire like the vampires and like the lore in that movie i don't know i just yeah Vampires freak me out. All right. Well, shall we get down to it? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> or I'll just keep distracting us. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about some general thoughts on this Halloween classic. Halloween. I mean, first off, it's my favorite slasher movie. I think that I've seen a lot of slashers, as we know. But there's something like very elegant about Michael Myers and his refusing to run and be bothered with these other tools. He's like, I prefer a knife or to use my hands. Um, and I feel like it's kind of romantic in a weird slashery way. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I personally, on this viewing, I maybe haven't seen it in seven or eight years. It's been a, it's been a minute. Um, I've probably seen it maybe 10 or 15 times all time. It, I, I always think of it as one of my absolute favorites, but I, I don't revisit it as often as, as some others because I think the best moments of the movie are when you get caught just a little off guard. And I, I kind of feel like with horror movies and comedies, I try not to burn them into the ground by watching them too much. Because if you if you get too focused on the timing and stuff, then like the magic fades just a little bit, you know? And so I do like to dig this one out every couple of years. And on this most recent viewing, especially since I knew we were going to talk about it, I was really blown away by the role violence plays in this movie. And the brutality of it. And I think especially when you think about this movie as kind of a blueprint for slasher movies. Like when you think about this as like a, a prototype for, I know there were slasher movies before, but I think it's kind of hard to argue that this, against this movie as like totally changing the genre, right? I mean, like Friday the 13th is literally made because they see how much money this makes. And they're like, make a new version of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I was just blown away by violence is really not romanticized at all in this movie romance in the or, sorry romance violence in this movie is ugly and it's scary and it's permanent and it's like slow there's like a really slow darkness to the energy that's very uncomfortable and i think when you compare that to like 
later Halloween movies, or like especially when you compare it to like the later Friday the Thirteenth movies, this this movie is very brutal, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of crazy that even gosh, was it nineteen seventy eight? Is that right? So it's yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like like it's 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 getting old, you know. And I think the brutality really lasts and lingers. So I know that wasn't really a quick thought. I'm sorry, but I do think I do think that that lens shapes like the way I view the whole movie. I I was really impressed, and I think one of the reasons it holds up to today uh, today's viewing audiences is it it doesn't rely so much on gore. There's not a lot of blood. There's not a lot of guts. Um, I think most of the kills that Michael does in this movie specifically, he strangles them. Yeah. There's like budget. no stabbings and mostly, yeah, right, budget, yeah. But, but part of the reason this movie is so iconic is because so many choices were made with the budget being like the leading factor. Like we wouldn't have the Michael Myers mask if they weren't like, quick, go to the Osco drug and bring us back yep. a couple of masks. And come back with the William Shatner mask. I was about to say, I think it's the William Shatner mask because yeah. I've heard in Urban Legend. Yeah, and it's and yeah. it's so iconic. I mean, it's one of the best villain looks in all of in all of horror cinema. Yeah, especially because you take the face of an actual person who people like know and love, and you make it void of a soul, and then it haunts us. I think <laughs> the budget was only three hundred thousand dollars, which is crazy low. They had to import leaves, which is why Jamie Lee Curtis would help them bag them up after scenes so they can reuse the same leaves because where they were filming in California looks nothing like Illinois. Sure, sure. <laughs> like, this is the indie movie that shows, yes, we can. <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away that just like the gumption of the movie, like that, that this movie willed itself into existence is really impressive. Right. Well, I, and I think another thing that sets it apart, which kind of goes off of Sheree's first note on it, is the, the sound, the music, the soundtrack. You got to talk about the score, right? Yes. It's so effective. It's yeah. just, it, even like the the weird 70s sound effects. Like <laughs> They're awesome. They're awesome. And like, there's like a couple of moments where like a piano starts playing before a kill. And it's almost... Um, it's almost operatic. It's almost like musical theater in a way where like somebody's theme starts playing and you're like, oh, she's going to die, you know? And like, it, it's interesting because what it does is the movie tips its hand and it, it, and it, it makes this gamble that it's going to be scarier for you that you know this character's going to die than it would be if they just shocked you with it. And I think that's a pretty bold move, but it pays off. I think that what's really cool with the score is the main theme um, is written in 5-4 time signature. And for almost every song in every like movie is probably going to be in 4-4 four, four and just have that straight 1-2-3-4. And what's really impressive about having it be in 5-4, and this is, I think, very deliberate by John Carpenter, is that your, your head and your heart are used to 4-4 four, four, and that by adding that one extra beat to each measure, it feels like the score is always chasing after you. Cause it's like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And you never get a sense of being settled because it's, it always feels like it's one beat ahead of you. And it actually adds this like feeling of being chased. And that's just like, that's badass music theory. Like that's just like, like right. John Carpenter understanding the way that music theory works in such a way that he, like, I think this movie is, Oh, this is maybe a bold claim. I think 40% of the success of this movie is the score. I think that like- That's my hot take. <laughs> a huge percentage of the success of this movie is the score. I think if yeah. you have a lesser score, 
we think of this movie as a really charming B movie. And instead, mm-hmm. because of that score, I think we think of it as one of the best horror movies ever made. And I, I, I think it's amazing. True story. John Carpenter showed like the powers that be the movie and they were like, so he chases babysitters. We don't get it. And he went home, got out his Casio. I forgot the name of the basic ass song that he like, played with on his Casio to get what we have now. Sure. And he brought it back and they were like, this is terrifying. This we will release. I believe that story with my whole heart, of course. Yeah. Because it, it does. It, it needs the score to like tell you when you should be scared. It's, it's one of the most like informative scores. It's right up there with Jaws. I mean, like, and if you think about it, Jaws is a similar movie. If Jaws doesn't have as good a score, I don't know if you guys count that as horror or not. I kind of do. I think sharks are scary. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think that it, it's really impressive. There's this era of film in, this, in the late 70s, early 80s, where they were doing some really bold exploration as far as like what it means to be scared, what it means to feel tense in a movie. And the score of this one is just a 10 out of 10 knockout. I, I yeah, and it, well, and because it doesn't, there, there's a few kind of surprise jump scares, but not many. Not many at all. It's yeah. mostly just this lurking in the background, watching you when you're not uh, like open to seeing it or whatever. You're not, seeing, yes. it's, it's what's happening behind you, yes. which is terrifying. Yeah. I, I think that the camera work is really impressive I, I, because this movie has these crazy long tracking shots. I mean, like, I think, I, so, I'm sorry, I guess, should we talk about the movie in order? I don't want to like derail us, but like, there is a part later on where Lori is running and just screaming like, please help me. Oh my God. And it is so scary. And you're just filled with existential dread. You're like, she is going to die. I'm going to die someday. We're all going to die. And like it, it is this lingering one take where like the camera operator follows her onto a porch and into a yard. And it's just her improvising and screaming and crying. And it is really bothersome it it gets underneath your skin i just oh, i love it but it it, yeah. it freaks me out <laughs> well and before we get into like specific things about the movie the one other thing i want to mention is the characters because i think this is one of the first horror films that we get not just one character that is fairly well developed i feel like especially the three girls the three babysitters totally are agree. fairly well developed they have they all none of them are completely one-dimensional they each have at least two other aspects about they them. at least have stakes and wants and needs which like right. sadly as a low bar for entry compared to other slasher movies is like tragically uh considerably right. more character because well, especially <laughs> to like friday the 13th there's so many of those characters that are just like why are you even here like they're just, you're just here to yeah. get killed. like you're yeah. just here to get killed yeah yes. No, I, I mean, I will give it that. I have to remind myself it's of the 70s. So, of course, those goals are to the men, which I have an issue with, but that's horror, and we're doing a horror podcast. So, yeah. like, gotta put that in the back of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. They're not, like, not, they're not all good characters, but they're not just there to be killed. They are very typical teens of their time. Um, so I will give it that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. All right, well, let's get down to it. Yeah. Um, so we open with, we're in Michael, baby Michael's point of view, which is one of the most, I, I mean, I would say this scene and the opening to Scream are the two most iconic horror opening scenes. Go ahead. Me? Yeah. 
Oh, I was just going to uh, totally agree. I think they are like two of the biggest, uh, like just first opening. I, I also would maybe throw, but maybe this is my own personal bias, the opening to 28 days later where he just wakes up and everybody's gone. I, like, but, but like, no, no, truly. I mean, you're talking about the Mount Rushmore of, of cold opens for horror movies, for sure. I totally agree. What I specifically love about this is because we're at Michael's point of view, it feels special because we never, even though so many people have tried, including Rob Zombie, we never know <laughs> specifically what happened. And oftentimes they like put it away and retcon it. And so this is the only time we get to be like, we were in his shoes for a hot second. Mm -hmm. We still don't know what's going on, but now we get to be outside of this ghostly soulless figure for the rest of the franchise. Yeah. So I don't know if anybody else clocked this, but like this child, his sister, I'm assuming is supposed to be watching him while, while his, their parents are out. He is outside across the street and you hear the sister say, well, Michael's around here somewhere. I'm like, y'all. And that's why he's babysitters. Yeah. I will say that like the weakest part of the movie is, is kind of exposed like right, right here, like right out of the gate, right? Which is just like, he's <laughs> supposed to just be evil. And like, you, if you look at this movie through like uh, too much of a psychoanalytic lens, it falls apart pretty fast yeah but like you right. just kind of have to accept like he is evil he's broken in this world we're gonna reduce we're, we're not gonna talk about psychology we're just gonna talk about good and evil like in this biblical sense right I, no i agree it, you're, you're just kind of left going like well why did he kill his sister and then why does he now kill all the babysitters it yeah <laughs> it, it, it is unfortunately like a, a glaring you're like no just don't look at that plot hole just ignore it and, and everything else is better I mean, like most horror. <laughs> I do love that they waited until like the curse of Michael Myers with Paul Rudd, which is like a decade and a half maybe later to be like, it's because of this curse that we just made up. And now there's a maid in a sombrero in a bathroom. And I was like, you know what? Just keep not answering this question for me. But thank you for inviting Paul Rudd. Well, and I think, you know, <laughs> um, sometimes in horror, what is left unanswered is sometimes the best. Totally. Because yeah, you don't right. always know why. Right. Well, I mean, I do think that, and you know, I mean, like, I think this works because this is kind of the next scene is that we get introduced to Dr. Loomis, who I think Dr. Loomis's role in this movie is very interesting because he's supposed to kind of be like the Michael Myers whisperer, but also he's like an abusive, obsessed, he's a bad psychologist. But I think we're I think we're supposed to feel like he is. You know what I mean? I do think that John Carpenter knows that he's a bad psychologist. And that's an interesting element of the story is that like, I don't think we're feeling like we're rooting for Loomis. I mean, I actually kind of feel like when Loomis shoots him at the end, spoilers, uh, <laughs> uh, when, when Loomis shoots him at the end, I think we're kind of like, a, in a weird way, kind of sad from like, like, the monster has been defeated but like we're like dude he's this broken guy he's your patient like uh the hippocratic oath much like do no harm you just shot him six times in the chest like what kind of therapist packs a gun and uses it on their clients yeah again i have to question our horror movie doctors um because right. he is Fair not a good honest. doctor so that gets all those weird moments where like through like from 2020 you want to be like well he's problematic and i'm like he is but like the movie weirdly knows he's problematic. And you're like, 
all right, I guess I can't call you on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. He's on his way to drug Michael and take Michael to a different place. So they can under the next yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. There's, I wonder if I could have done something different as a doctor. There's no, have I tried another thing contacting him? It's just like, I'm going to drug him and you better not get out. Yeah. Oh, she can go. <laughs> Let me get a gun. <laughs> the, yeah, the gun is just yeah, it's just wild. <laughs> so it, yeah, in, in the scene where we meet Dr. Loomis and the drive, him and the nurse are driving. When they, when you slightly see all the patients walking around, that is terrifying. To yeah, me. yeah, that's really creepy. Yeah, yeah, psych patients in the rain in the dark is uh, it's a it's a freaky image. Well, especially yeah. since this facility is not they're not just housing like schizophrenics they're housing people who have done some awful awful it's specifically, things right exactly violent people yeah it, it's uh it's freaky i i i do like i don't know i, I do like that this movie kind of like halfway it it does definitely have its cake and eat it too when it comes to like mental health like it, it, it it's it's like we're gonna kind of introduce the idea that there's something wrong with him from like a brain chemistry perspective but we're really not going to touch it. And actually we think the therapist is a bad man <laughs> <laughs> is, you know, in any movie, especially horror movies, if there's ever a classroom scene, you have to pay attention to what they're talking about in class. Cause that's what the movie's about. You know, like I love that trope, you know, right. um, but in this one, she's in like an English class or perhaps a philosophy class. And they're talking about fate and they're specifically talking about whether or not you can change your fate or if you're set in the roles that you're supposed to play. And I do think that is ultimately what this movie is about. That plus the role of violence and how violence, you know, um, is like equally uh, magnetizing and destructive. I, I, I kind of feel like that's what the movie's about in a way. Yeah, I also talk that teacher because fate and destiny were like being hit very hard. Hard, like, yeah. Before I was like, make sure you hear that. And it kind of holds over to all of Lori's adventures with her brother. If you track it, even the ones we don't own anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. always like you were fated to fight him again. Clearly you yeah. have unfinished business with your like family and whatnot. And so like, this is her destiny. So the, after we meet Dr. Loomis and the nurse and we see Michael get out, then we go to Lori walking to school. I hate all of her costumes in this movie. What, I do think that the costume designer is trying really hard to paint her in a really specific way because it feels like if I may just be like a little bit like objectifying for a second like Jimmy Lee Curtis is so beautiful like stunningly beautiful and so they have this problem where like they're they've cast this young woman who uh would just not have a problem getting a date in, in any you know fantasy world you know she's beautiful and she's smart and she's funny and she's cool and so they have to like artificially create a reason why Lori is kind of an outsider and it feels <laughs> like it's only because she dresses poorly <laughs> like how about that she's on that effect <laughs> yes no 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 right like like she's gonna take off her glasses and let her hair down because yeah it's just it is a funny I, I that's what I I personally think that's why those costume choices are there. That would make sense because they're all tro like at first I was like, maybe I just hate all feminine fashion from the seventies. But no, but, I, then but then the friends show up and I'm like, they all look great. I think some of her friends look very cute. Like their outfits <laughs> are very cute. And then hers look like a nineteen fifties second grade teacher. Like like yeah. it's it's like so very Mary Tyler Moore. 
And yes. it's done in part, I feel, because back then the final girl had to be the virginal trope. And so nothing can be showing. So she's always buttoned to the chin and to the fingers and long yes. bell bottoms, like flats, which helps her out for running later. And the other friends get to undo some buttons and have some arm cleavage. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, eventually we see her arm, yeah. Because her color, her color palette is like browns and you did browns yeah white and it's just not cute then the friends they have like lavender and and green like one of them is in like a really nice mint green jacket like super cute so especially sitting standing next to them it does make her look like the odd one out and i i do think i kind of going off that point that that you know like the final girl especially at this time always is like a virgin and stuff i do think one of my favorite things about Lori, and actually one of my favorite things about this movie is like she smokes pot and like i kind of get the impression that if she had a boyfriend she'd have sex with him she just doesn't have a boyfriend you know and like i i do really like that element of this movie is that yes she is the most chaste and the most pure but like she's also like a normal human it's not like some weird like let's make this pious white knight you know like I, she does feel like a person you know and it makes it scarier yeah i also think that the color palette they put her in which is like mute colors um it helps her blend in and be the least noticeable uh, and the most ordinary because it ends up being about her so while her friends get to wear color and fun stuff they're basically sort of cannon fodder um because <laughs> michael's here for her she's the most interesting person and she's blending into the, the wallpaper I'm curious. So, okay, maybe I'll know because I I don't know the tea on this, but I want to know when the idea because it's not introduced in this movie at all that she is his sister. It's not introduced until the sequel. It's at the end of the second one. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I want to know if that was always planned or if that was like introduced. Trey looks like she knows. Yeah. <laughs> if I if I remember correctly, John Carpenter wrote the second one but did not direct it. And so to me, that would suggest that in John Carpenter's head, they are related. Now, maybe that was a studio note that got tacked on or whatever. But to me, the fact that his name shows up as the writer of that story says that either they were always planning on it or at the very least stumbled upon it and committed to the choice. But I'm with you because I remember that as part of the story. And then every time I watch this first one, I'm like, oh, that's right. That. They don't really explain that at all. But it actually makes more sense in a way. Like, I know it's a little bit soap opera-y, like, oh, he's your brother. But I do think it also kind of makes more sense because, like, uh, otherwise it is very random. It's like, well, it's on the street where he lived, but actually almost none of the violence happens in the house where he lived. Almost all the violence happens in other people's houses like it, yeah I, I think it does kind of make more sense that they are related or something like that so the t is each oh, of we're supposed to be like two movies each which is why curse of the witch which we've already aired by the time this airs is not in this sequence because it doesn't belong because nobody wanted it so they were like stop that put michael back but we were supposed to get like two movies of everything for this anthology yeah, that they had planned okay. And if we like really like focus on like this first one, like her parents have her take something to the Myers house, which is where Michael is. And Michael steals the gravestone and creates this scene, which is like the sister, the mother, and I don't know who the boyfriends are supposed to be, but it's a very familial last dead supper situation. Oh, totally. Which is like actually very accurate to the psychology of serial killers. 
I do think that that's like a very interesting element of this movie is that like specifically John Carpenter was inspired by real life serial killers, which like at the time, well, I mean like the, the Netflix show Mindhunter is like literally about this era, which was like all of these serial killers start showing up and then like government psychologists had to figure out what the hell was happening because like it was like a borderline epidemic. And I think John Carpenter is reacting to the news and the real world around him. And like Mike, Michael Myers is actually specifically based on, um, shoot, I'm thinking of, I can't believe I'm his first name, Kemper. It's the, the, he's in Mindhunter. He's like one of yeah. the main, any, anywho, Kemp, Kemper is definitely his last name. Um, but yeah, he was a murdering piece of shit. So it's okay. I don't remember his name. There you go. Uh, but uh, he, he, he is like very much the inspiration for, for Michael Myers. And I think that's part of why he feels so scary. He's not, a, a dream character he's not uh you know like the drowned boy the zombie thing that came from the bottom of the lake he's a serial killer he's he's a, a person with hands and yeah. knives and it's grounded yeah and well and the reason i ask is because like part of me was like Lori, if you would just stay in that in your house he's just over there killing all the people in his other house it's not till you go over there and start picking your nose around but like if he's if he's if she's the sister from the get-go and he's always going after her, then it doesn't matter. Either. I think it's an excellent point. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but as they're walking, you see Michael is just stalking them, essentially. And you get all the, the breathing. He's clearly a mouth breather. Uh <laughs> <laughs> never noticed it until this time. I feel like Michael Myers has asthma, which, I mean, awesome for visibility, but also it was unsettling because he's breathing the whole movie. The whole movie and during the credits. Yes. It's just the song and it's breathing, and I was so uncomfortable. But you know, he was just decades before he needed to wear a mask because he had asthma and he didn't want to get COVID. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I agree. I think that it, from like a sound design perspective, it lays down this really, it's like a nails on chalkboard, um, fork scraping a plate, kind of like it's just this like ambient white noise that is unsettling. And it just causes your anxiety threshold to rise and then never go back down. So after we meet Lori, they're walking and we see Michael. So we, the audience already knows that Michael is in Haddonfield and stalking these, these girls. Um, but we go back to Dr. Loomis, probably one of the most useless characters in this film, uh, <laughs> up until like the last uh, minute. He yeah. is, but this scene, I laughed because he's talking to that doctor and he's, he's trying to tell them that Michael drove away. The doctor's like, well, no one would have taught Michael to drive. And he's like, well, dude, I, like, I watched him. I watched it happen. So something happened. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't just, like, float. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a driver. <laughs> so, but yeah. So, Mike, so then we figure out that now Loomis knows where Michael's going. And then we go to the high school. Um, and then we see, so Lori and her friend, does anyone remember what her friend's name is? Annie there's, or the other one? There's Annie and Linda. Which one's the brunette? Uh, Annie. That's, that's Annie. Yeah. Annie. And she's the cop's daughter. Yes. So they're yes. driving and smoking. I love this scene. I love this scene. And they see her dad. for the Reaper. And it's perfect because they're driving into this night of horror. Yep. <laughs> no, it's great. And I also just love that, like, it's so high school. It's like one of these really great details where these these kids do feel very, like, 
innocence and and youthful and like at, and this moment where like you're they're riding in the car windows rolled up smoking a joint and then they pull up to her dad cop and roll the window down it's gonna smell dank in there are you kidding like like get out like how dumb do you think your cop dad is like that's such a high school kid thing like 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 okay uh, if I don't talk to him, he won't know I'm drunk. You know, <laughs> like, like, did you have a good night? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just like, that is a, I love it. It's a very pure, sweet scene. And, I, and I'm laughing at it, but I'm actually not making fun of it because I think no, it's same. very genuine. And it does feel like something that like two, like good high school kids would do. High school kids, like, it's like, I, I like, what I like with this movie compared to a lot of slashers, is there's a, I feel like there's a little bit less of like a morality like Jason truly feels like this like almost like angel of death like weird like I love those movies but there's some weird religious stuff going on but like in this one it does feel a little bit more like is it not a tragedy that these young people were murdered because really they didn't do anything wrong and I think this movie handles it a little bit more in that vein than a lot of slashers, including like later movies in this franchise. <laughs> yes. This uh, is my, well, this is my favorite of all of the Halloweens, including the remakes and the rearranging of things. This is mm -hmm. my favorite. And it's the oldest, it's the original. Mm -hmm. It says a lot about what came after. I always wondered if John Carpenter envisioned these being the same movie, but they got to be too long and that's why he broke it up. And so we have like the breadcrumbs in this one for some of the payoffs in the second yeah, one. Yeah, there is clearly like a Judd Apatow style improv directing happening in this movie. I, you know what I mean? Like, like there's definitely like, there's this one moment where I think it's Annie clearly. So like it's a long tracking shot and the girls are all like out talking. And actually this is like the exact part of the movie we're at right now, pretty much. And very clearly like Michael or someone is supposed to like cross the frame you know and they're clearly stalling because she, she goes books you know sometimes I forget my chemistry book and sometimes I forget my English book and sometimes I book my book book and the book and the book and and and, and the book and, and it is like crazy that that made it into the final cut of the movie because <laughs> It is so clearly an actor who is like, he's not, he's not crossing. He's not crossing. It's a tracking shot. I have to stall. I have to stall. Thank you. He, he hit his mark. Okay. Like, and it is, it, it gets one of those few places where you can see the strings, you know, like they did that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I love that moment. It's, a, that's what I love about like low budget stuff though. You know, like, like I think there is a purity to, I think there's a reason why like, a lot of people think the first Star Wars is the best one. Cause like there's a purity to like, we're going to shoot this thing. We don't know if it's going to work out, but we believe in it. And mm -hmm. guess what? Sometimes you get trash when you do that, but then every now and then you get absolute pure uncut artistic gold because it's an artist just making the thing. And th when, when that happens and when the stars line up, that's when you get the absolute most iconic pieces of art. Right. The one thing John Carpenter has got to answer to me, okay. how big is this goddamn town? And how far away do these children live from their school? They walk for like three miles. I the feel geography like. is wild. Yeah, there, there are some world building elements that are not. And when they're driving to the house, when they're driving to the house, like this scene where they're talking to the dad, it's the day they drive off and then it cuts 
and then it's nighttime. They've been driving well, like all like, day. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, since we're here, let's do this. Like, there are children trick or treating at three thirty p.m. on Halloween, and then at night, the children aren't out trick or treating. They're staying with the babysitter because the parents are going out trick or treat. I mean, like. That doesn't make any sense. It's it's Halloween. It's the one night where you never get a babysitter because you take your kids out trick or treating. And that doesn't make sense. It, it, and <laughs> no, like um, like time in general, very confusing in that regard. Like, and, and also like, okay, well then it's established that Annie has a car and Annie can drive, but they walk to and from school like. I don't know. You, you, <laughs> we're in the weeds. I apologize. But. I, I did the mental gymnastics for Annie's car and was like, maybe it's the mother's car. But oh, also, yeah, I can't do mental gymnastics for this time jump into like the evening hours. <laughs> no, no. The, the kids, does it doesn't make sense. It is like, it doesn't matter. It's not an important plot hole, but it's a plot hole. <laughs> and the kids they're babysitting don't have costumes. Like, what child doesn't have a costume unless right. there's a sad story behind it? Right. Literally. Yeah. Right. It, it's, so, it's so maybe they're Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe maybe that would maybe, maybe we should be more tolerant. Maybe we should be more tolerant. Maybe they're Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, that's an interesting wrinkle to the lore of this movie. All the Donald Glovers out there, I I want to take back what I just and said. They're the, they're the only ones that are saved. Are, are the Jehovah's Witnesses? The <laughs> Halloween is like a Jehovah's Witness recruitment film. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, one thing that I did, what goes back to <laughs> explaining earlier, the one thing that I liked that this film did, it didn't literally show you how he got his mask and all this stuff. Like, right. like it, it, it hints at it. Like, I, we all know how he got it. But, like, in the remake that Rob Zombie did, you, like, you see him go in there, he breaks and he kills some needless people that have no point in yeah. being, other than being killed like it was just unnecessary that i didn't need to see that the way that this film handles it it makes you think enough that it's like oh 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 yeah the, the body count in that remake if i remember correctly is like five times as many people like in this movie only like five people and two dogs die or something like that yeah. but so okay I, I guess don't you think there's like a reading of this movie that basically like he did a bad thing as a kid and probably does have like some darkness. He probably has like reactive detachment disorder or something like that, but which probably means he survived a trauma as a child. Um, and he does this very bad thing, but then for the rest of his life is told and taught and trained, like you're a monster and you have this abusive psychologist, a therapist, I, I, his role is a little bit vague, but like, like you have Loomis, who's this abusive doctor in his life who basically I don't know, like in a nature versus nurture debate, you put him in the absolute worst possible situation to turn into a good person. And I do think that there is something interesting there that like mm -hmm. we we don't get to see, what is it, 15 years or so in between uh -huh. the, the intro and the movie. Yeah. We, we don't know. And I think there is reason to believe that he was abused in, you know, when he was in, in prison slash mental hospital. Yeah. Yes, and I kind of I kind of appreciate that because we do send people to these prisons and things. Some of them definitely deserve this time out, some don't. And so it's like, what goes on in there? Are you helping them or are you making the problem worse when you put them in there? Well, like, didn't, isn't he, what, how is he, eight when he does it? Yeah, 
So I mean, you like, come when you're eight, and you come out when you're twenty-three-ish. Yeah, and well, and he breaks out at twenty-three-ish. I mean, like, there's every implication that he's there for even longer, and it's like he's a child. Like, like he did a, an inexcusable, horrible thing. But it's like if you believe in humanity and like the value of life, you have to like think that there's a chance that you can, you know, save him and make him better. And instead, Loomis. I mean, Loomis is a monster. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um. So after the after we see the break in at the store, we go to uh, one of the kids that will be babysat the boy who Lori is babysitting. Tommy. Him. Yes. So he's getting bullied, and this is where we get the idea of the boogeyman, because these bullies are telling him the boogeyman's going to come get you. The boogeyman's going to come get you. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 they never really go into the idea of Michael being a boogeyman other than this boy saying that he is. Yeah, it does seem like if there's like a real gripe about the story of this movie, I think maybe the biggest one you can make is this is this fairly small town where this horrible trauma happened on Halloween night. And I think that it's weird that that there's not more of a Michael Myers will get you. It's Halloween and you live in this small town. And like, there's, it's weirder, I think, that the whole town has like moved on from it. it. To me, it would make more sense if he's like a local folk legend kind of. And then, then some of this kind of clunkiness about the boogeyman maybe gets resolved just a little bit. Does it make sense as a story well, note? I don't know. I feel like we all have a short attention span though. And that is like today, especially in the Midwestern towns that have made me unfortunately. Um, but it's like this awful thing happened, but now there's a new Smoking Joe's opening. So we forgot so, about it. Squirrel, yeah, I, I hear that, I hear that. So after he's being bullied, Tommy uh, runs away and he is um, stopped by our good friend, Mike. Um, <laughs> who's just looking at him and breathing heavy. And I was like, how is this dude just walking the streets of Haddonfield looking like a creep? Like what adult, if I saw a man, a grown ass man, even if it's on Halloween, by himself walking around with looking like that, I, I would think something suspicious is up. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, there's so many red flags that you can track. So he, <laughs> he is dressed like a custodian with a mask on. So it's like, oh, Edgar tried this Halloween. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to what we know he is. <laughs> oh, the school forced their janitorial staff to dress up this Halloween. <laughs> yeah. It was like last year he just wrote potato on a name tag and showed up. This year he got a mask. Good for Edgar. <laughs> so then we go to Lubus again, and he's now on his way to Haddonfield, I guess. And he sees uh, that Michael has killed a man and taken his uniform or whatever. He finds, okay, this is a weird Easter egg, but I don't, it never goes anywhere. So I never, I don't understand it. He's, he finds a box of matches that's from like, I think it's called the Red Rabbit Lounge. Yeah, there is this weird, like it feels, Loomis, there's a moment early on where you're like, oh, is Loomis's plot going to be kind of like a noir? Is he going to like end up kind of taking like a detective kind of role? And he finds that matchbook. And that feels straight out of like a 1940s, like the Maltese Falcon, like noir detective thing. And right. you're like thinking he's gonna like go to like 
what what's it called the red rabbit lounge or something like that yeah something like that and, and like you're like you're, you think he's gonna go there and like jessica rabbit from hoover and roger rabbit's gonna be like <laughs> let's play patty cake you know like like it, it's so like it but then it doesn't go anywhere you're totally right it is like, yeah it's it, it, interesting like, detail he picks it up and looks at it so you think that there's he's gonna do something it's an odd choice because i mean like there are these there are clear like establishing shots of the matchbook and the movie in general is a pretty intentional movie. It is odd that that made it into the right. final cut and yet doesn't really add up. Yeah. Right. I don't know. It was weird. So then we go back to Lori and her friends. And this is where I would argue the movie truly takes off. I Like, I every time I watch this movie, the first 30 minutes, well, okay, good. Like, the first scene's absolutely incredible. And then the next, like, 26 minutes, I always go, oh, shoot, is this not as good as I remember? And, and that happens every time. I'm like, have I uh, done that thing where I overly romanticized that thing from my past, haven't I? <laughs> and then right around here, it's, for me, it's about the time that Annie ends up getting locked in the laundry room. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> like, like, this movie... It hits the gas and then it never lets up. <laughs> Literally, the second they get in the car and No for the Reaper starts and they get to their destinations, it's like, this is where we should have been. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I think that that is definitely one of those problems a lot of people have with the setting up of something because you have to like introduce all these characters, you have to like give all this exposition and it does feel longer. <laughs> I agree. It I does. agree. But I think you like... I, I, for me, almost all of my favorite horror movies, you know, like, as I said, the top, like, have something to say about a specific topic. And I think you have to establish characters to successfully do that. I mean, like, Babadook comes to mind. Like, that movie is about depression and grief and, and trauma. And that movie doesn't work if it's not slow at the beginning because you have to feel for these people. I think that's so important. And this movie is one of the all-time great examples of that, where there's like 30 minutes of high school kids being high school kids, AKA kind of obnoxious, kind of, you know, like, right. like you, you start to care about them as humans. And, and then it, when they start dying here, it's traumatic. It sucks. Yes. It's hard to watch. Yeah. And I think that, I think this, that's why this film is so much better than the remake is because, again, Rob Zombie adds all these characters that have no point in being there other than to let Michael kill them. But, okay, so but, but before they What get, movie are we talking about? Right, before they get to their respective children that they're babysitting, there's some really good moments because I love the line, hold on, where is it? Uh, Annie, so Jason pull not Jason, Michael pulls up in his car because he's stalking these girls, and they think that it's some <laughs> other dude. Paul, maybe. I don't remember. There's lots of guys I talk about that's not in this movie. Um, and they think it's Bonnie him. Bonnie Lamp, Dick Baxter. <laughs> right. right. And he, like, keeps driving and they say something. He, like, slams on his brakes and then he moves off and Annie says, ugh, I hate men with cars and no sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> there you go. Same. Agreed. <laughs> And yeah, and then we also get, this is kind of like an iconic shot, I feel like. It's the shot where the uh, they've already let Linda go. Linda's gone. Um, and it's Annie and Lori, and they're keep walking. And Michael's just standing on the side of the road. And um, then Lori and Annie's like digging through her backpack. This might have been the moment where you're talking about, about her talking about the books or whatever. Um, 
And she and Lori's like, hey, Annie, look. And then she looks up just in time, like right after Michael goes into the bushes. And I'm like, why I think couldn't she look, yeah. yeah, why couldn't she have looked up a, like a second sooner? <laughs> yes. Timing yes. is everything. <laughs> I I love Michael's idea of a cat and mouse game is to stand out and be visibly seen and then disappear so people know he's there and he's coming. <laughs> And so, oh, we also get um, Linda calling Lori and, like, at first, never saying hello. She's just... And then Lori's like, okay, bye, and hangs up. And then she calls back and says, why'd you hang up on me? Well, because you didn't say anything. And she's like, it was obviously me. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I know how it sounds when you masticate. I'm very aware of your chewing sound. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> Well, that's definitely Linda chewing. And it sounds right. like Cool Ranch Dorito. No, no, nacho cheese. Nacho cheese. Yes. Very nacho cheese. <laughs> we go to the, the cemetery. Oh, I do really like this cemetery moment. And there's specifically a line that is, every town has a story like this. And I think that's a really important moment in the movie for, again, I think this movie is a lot about fate, as it tells us, but it's also about how violence is equally hypnotic and destructive. And I think that that moment saying like, hey, violence is so rampant, it's, it's so prevalent that every town unfortunately has a horrible, and he starts to tell this like really messed up story about this guy with a hacksaw. And then I think like one of the scariest moments of the whole movie is he doesn't finish the story. And so your, <laughs> your imagination is left with this guy dismembering his family with a hacksaw. And you're the one who did that. It's like, he they accept you with it, and it's it's. Oh, I love that moment. That's great writing, really right. great. And so we figure out that Michael. So this is a weird moment because it looks like did he just dig up her tombstone? He yeah. just dug up a tombstone. At first, okay. I my, my first interpretation of it when I first saw it back in the day was like, oh, I guess she got cremated. Like I guess it's like a. Mm -hmm. But then when you see the tombstone later on, which I mean, we'll talk about that. That's actually yeah. one of my favorite moments of the whole movie. Right. Uh, but I do think this is a great Chekhov's gun in a sense. We it's like he dug up the tombstone, and you're like weird. But then if you really think about it, you're like, oh, well, that means that tombstone's gonna come back at some point in time. You know, it's that's gonna go off at the end. Right. I do appreciate that as a story element that you're like, Chekhov's tombstone. Okay, right on. Like, uh, yeah. It, it is very much the first breadcrumb that this is about family for Michael yeah, yes. on some level, even if we don't get all the levels yet. Right, true. This, yeah, this is one of the first uh, hints that we have that there is something specific about what he's doing. Yes, intentional, yeah. Um, so then we get to... Um, Yes, we get to where they're at their houses, but Yay. <laughs> it's just yeah, right. It's just kind of because we quickly go to Loomis because he tells the police the chief police chief that he's gonna stay at the Myers house. <laughs> Sorry. Again, Sorry. useless man. <laughs> Why are you just staying in this house? He's clearly not at. Yeah, L Loomis is a train wreck. <laughs> right. Oh, also, okay, so I have thoughts about this. Because I was watching with a friend last night, and we both had the same thought. Why do these com these breaks, scene breaks, some of them, not all of them, feel like commercial breaks? Because they, like, fade to black and then fade Yeah, I think part of it is there is such a prevalence of long tracking shots and, like, one takes that I think in editing, 
they had to like just abruptly end. Like it was like kind of like they're rolling camera, they're rolling camera. This is great, and then like somebody like th- this movie's so bu- so low budget that like it might have been like we only have one time, we only have one take on this scene, or like maybe we only have two takes, and it's like. And then, like, a camera operator coughed and, like, ruined the take. But, like, you got to, like, I think that's probably what it is. Is budgetary constraints caused them to, like, abruptly end certain scenes. But I agree. It feels very network TV at times. You're like, oh, okay. It feels like I'm watching, like, a 70s miniseries. And, it's, and then, like, I've recorded it, though. But I, I'd stopped recording on the commercials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we did back in the day. <laughs> so, Okay. Then we get officially to their uh, respective houses and Annie calls Lori um, and they're talking about boys because that's what girls do. It was shot so weirdly because you have Annie from the top up on the phone and then you have Annie's legs with the dog. And I'm just like, did you have any stand-in come in to be legs? Because I feel like we could have done this differently. I, I did wonder about that. Is that like, that's so interesting. It's like, it, was that a reshoot thing? Was that, I, I totally, I notice it. And then the other thing that's like unavoidable that we really haven't talked about yet, that is a thr- like totally a through line in all thrillers, but especially like late 70s to 80s thrillers is the horniness. And this like, uh, you know, like Trent said, there's probably a whole like three part series you guys could do on like just teenagers and horror films, but like this budding sexuality that is like this very like ultimately very innocent, like driven by hormone. And I do think that the way that Annie in particular is shot sexualizes her in in a way. Although like I don't know, and I'm like a cishead dude, so whatever. But like I like I do think that like there is an attempt to and totally totally disagree with me i think that this movie compared to other slashers does respect the actresses and like tries to use their nudity like fairly sparingly and is using like nudity means vulnerability in this movie it doesn't just mean like hey look boobs um for the most part um i don't know i i don't know if i have a full thought there but i do think that where we're looking at her legs and not her face like it's kind of like here is her body removed from like her head and her personality with juxtaposed with all of the horniness in this movie and the fact that a lot of people who are getting killed are sexually active i don't know there might be something there it might be intentional but it could also just be reshoots <laughs> there, there is because like now that you mention it we only see the one pair of boobs which for a horror movie is miraculous especially yeah. of this time oh yeah the 70s were all about the censor said we can do what we want and so right. they- like exploitation, no intimacy directors. Well, we do we do see two sets of movies because we see his sisters in the beginning and that's right. Linda's in this well coming up. She's yeah. undersung because she's not Drew Barrymore, so we keep forgetting about her. <laughs> <laughs> Fair points. So yeah, so she's still something on herself and she's gotta take her clothes off. And Mike's just watching her do it, because that's what he does. <laughs> and she puts a button down white button down shirt on. Um, and what, while she's doing this, she, the dog starts barking in outside and cause she's barking at Michael and she yells for the girl to go get the dog. But then I, she, the dog stops barking, but before it stops barking, it clearly does like that dog dying. Yeah. It was so sad. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, Oh, he stopped. Like, I think you need to go check on this dog that just whimpered outside your window. 
it was definitely one of those moments of a horror movie where you have to suspend disbelief because they do this test so often where it's like in this situation we would be like something happened to that dog what we want to do about it <laughs> to us that dog is no more it's also where it's perfect to have teenagers as the main characters because teenagers are all little micro narcissists and she cares about her phone conversation and she cares about hooking up with paul and like those are her wants those are her needs and everything else is outside of that and if she's a grown adult it's not acceptable behavior but if she's 17 you kind of have to write it off a little bit you know <laughs> well okay and so again this is this moment to me is one of the better filmmaking moments because we go from this scene um to back to uh, Lori's place of employment her babysitting house and the kid sees Michael outside of the other house watching Annie on the phone. Um, and he has the moment of saying, "There's a bo the boogeyman's outside, the boogeyman's outside. And Lori's like, that's not real, blah, blah, blah. Lori kind of recycles the gaslighting that she receives. Like her friends are kind of yeah. like, like, you're just being crazy. And then like she turns around and does it to the kid. It's like, uh, it's, yeah, it feels right. very realistic, unfortunately. Yeah, like. It's, an, it's another moment of suspended disbelief because if I was seeing a boogeyman throughout the day and then I get to a house and whoever I'm hanging out with like, there's a boogeyman, I'm like, that's too, too many boogeymen. We should leave. I, I agree. <laughs> I do think there's a little bit of Lori. We see how maternal she is, for lack of better words. And I do think she is the kind of person who would tell um, like a lie to a child to try to make them feel better like i think maybe she doesn't even totally buy when she's like there's no boogeyman because like you just said he, she's been seeing him all day but you're right, right. i think you have to like it's one of those moments where you're like why is laurie not like ah shit you see him too <laughs> like like like, she's like a bonding <laughs> moment yeah right well and okay so just culturally though the 70s is a big transitional period between like you were saying earlier about the whole obsession with serial killers and so many serial killers happening at that time but because we're coming out of the 60s we're literally especially in suburbia people didn't fucking lock their doors which to me is insane but like <laughs> that's because i've watched all the 70s shit so i know there's all these serial killers out there ready to come in and kill me so and even in this movie they don't they don't like half the time those doors aren't locked right i what i do think I do think that's what partially makes this such an interesting backdrop for this film. You know, I mean, like, uh, we haven't mentioned the elephant in the room that I think every single actor in the entire film is white. Uh, like, uh, it, it is probably fairly realistic. I do think that, like, this town is probably a pretty segregated town, you know. But it is an interesting story element that it is this, like, white picket fence. Every Everybody leaves their doors unlocked. It it almost makes their um the way in which that they are naive seems like there's just a little bit of an element of this is kind of your fault like michael is a monster but this is kind of your fault a little bit and it's a really interesting moral juggling that the movie does mm -hmm. because of that picture you just painted it also it's very much like bad things don't happen here like, right, right, no, no. Yeah. We all have these jobs. We all have suits. We all go to these schools. Yeah. It, it, it is, it's destroying the illusion of safety. It's shattering the illusion of safety. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, 
I think it's one of the maybe most interesting things the film chooses to say, personally. Mm -hmm. So, okay, then Annie has to go out to the laundry room that is outside of the main house. Why would you buy a house where your laundry's two blocks away from it? I know I don't own real estate, but I would never. I needed to be in the home so I can go to it half-dressed at the last minute. The amount of times <laughs> I get out of the shower, the amount of times I get out of the shower and I have to go to the laundry room to get my clothes, like, yeah. it couldn't be out. Or I'd be like, hey, neighbor, what's going on? No, 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 that would be me. Yeah, I, I, I would need tall fences. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'd be like, ah, no, I forgot to do the whites last night. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> No, I do. It's one of those things where you got to suspend your disbelief a little bit. I guess it's like a housekeeper's quarters. I don't know. But the fact that she does have to remove herself, this is where the, the movie just takes off. This is the it moment does. where it, it just hits warp speed and then it never stops. Because yes. that moment where, as, as probably goofy as it is, where she like tries to go out the window and she's stuck. And then like, is it Lindsay? The kid comes and kind of saves her. And she's so like disoriented and like you can kind of tell that she's starting to feel scared and like kind of confused. And like, I, I just think all of that is just incredible filmmaking. Yeah. And it feels, I don't know, I, I think it feels really real. It, it feels like a teenager who's like pretending to be an adult. This There's this moment where she gets pulled back in and she has this very like infantilized look on her face where she's like, dazed almost and like probably the character the actor was probably like on coke or whatever but in the movie uh she looks very like concerned that she was in such a place of peril and that the child had to save her and i do think it's very deliberately like a low stakes version of peril whereas we're about to see the most extreme possible version of peril and i think it's it does a good job as a measuring stick. Right. It's also kind of a red herring because when I first watched it, of course, now I know what happens. But when I first watched it, I was like, oh, she's about to die. You think he's going to like shut, like if it were Friday the 13th, he'd like slam the window on her until she's dead or something like that. Right. Yeah. I have seen this movie 30, 40 times being conservative in my estimate, probably more than that. And each time I still get tense and I know she's fine right now. And I'm just like, oh, don't go out there. Yeah. Oh, girl, you in danger. And I know how it's going to end, but like still, I'm just like, oh. And it's because of all of those things. Well, in this part here, and Trent, stop me if I'm jumping the gun, but I think in my head that these scenes are kind of consecutive, is this is where we really start to get like the teenagers, like Linda and Bob, you know, show up and they've been drinking and, and like, we get the teenagers, and I personally feel like I, I don't necessarily like these characters, but I feel for them. And they seem like real teenagers who just objectively don't deserve to be horribly murdered. Right. And I do think that they're just kids, you know? And it's like they're, the stupid stuff they're doing isn't evil stuff. And like, I do think the movie does a very heartbreaking job of like again maybe you don't like the characters but you do at least like recognize their humanity and you then would, when they are murdered it does feel like something was taken away yeah you at least like Lori's connection to them even if you don't totally. like them you like their friendship so they find we finally get annie out and the but one of the favorite parts is that the what when her when the stakes get risen for her is when the phone starts ringing and she's like, oh, it's Paul! Paul, it's Paul, let me out! Let me out, yeah. 
kids. Being kids in right. the sense. Failing right. the Bechdel test because it wasn't around yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like, okay, so she's finally got the boyfriend that she really wants. I mean, I would have been the same way when I was 16, 17. Like, right. he's calling me and I can't get out of here. You know, like. Right. Um, and then I don't have a cell phone, so <laughs> I can't do that. Um, so, and then she gets out, she talks to him, and she has to go pick him up. And so she goes over and drops off, um, what's her kid's name? Uh, Lindsay. Lindsay, with Tommy. Another L name, yeah. Another L name. <laughs> because you trade your kids around when you're babysitting in the 70s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, and then she goes back, and she gets, tries to get in her car, but she doesn't have her car keys. Oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. She has to go back. Oh, my And then she comes back to the car, and the car door is clearly open, like, this is probably my heartbreaking suit because like she's like oh my car's locked let me get my keys real quick and she like stops when she gets her keys in her bag she brushes her hair because she's about to like go get it in with her new boyfriend yeah. and then she like bounces back out and doesn't understand the car is unlocked because she's all in her head and she's like i have to do this this and this and then we're going to do this this and this so she is firmly in the car about to put the key in the ignition and she's like oh these windows are foggy because the asthmatic michael myers has been in the car <laughs> waiting for her <laughs> with his hot breath yeah it's just like <sighs> and so like, he of course strangles her and she's like trying to hit the horn and trying to fight back and it's that's the one that breaks me that's it's the one that it's a sad kill again in this movie there are there are what I would call sad kills. Like it happens, and you're like, "Oh, I'm sad." I totally agree. I think it's a it's a legitimately sad moment. Right. I think her moments of discovery feel like I I see myself. Like she gets in the car. She's like, "Why is the windshield all fogged up? I'm dead." I mean, like that. It feels so real. Yeah. So and then we see um, again. Tommy is freaking out because now he's seeing the boogeyman carrying a body out of the house, which is weird later, for later on purposes. We'll get there. But uh, carrying when the body- his house of horrors. Yeah. Right. <laughs> carrying the body out of the house and he's freaking out again and Lori again dismisses him. It's like, okay, this is the second time he has told you that someone or something is outside and you're just like, nah, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some cognitive dissonance going on there. Right. Yeah. Um. Oh, and then and then we go back to Mr. Useless, Loomis. Um, <laughs> That's how we're calling him now, Mr. Useless. He's Dr. Useless. Dr. Trent. Dr. Useless. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and he's just standing outside the Myers house. And I had the thought, like, what do these neighbors think? This random dude is just yes. standing outside of their home watching this house where this boy killed his sister eight years ago or how many years it was. And it's like, <laughs> what is going on? All right, so then that happens, and then then we go back, and Linda and Paul, wait, Linda and Bob, Bob, Linda and Bob. Another, yeah, yeah. another. I had to look it up. White. I actually don't know that they say his name in the movie. Yeah. Another generic white boy name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so then they pull up, and they're drunk, and they go in, and they're not even like concerned that Annie's not there. They're just like, okay, we're gonna make it on the couch for a little bit. It's fine. <laughs> um. And then I think they talked to Lori, and Lori's like, oh, she went to go pick up Paul. Yeah. Well, then they have, okay, that's where she is now. Yeah. And uh, then, yeah. And then the, yeah. And then the doing it. 
then they're doing it. Okay, now I don't know. Maybe this is just me being naive. I don't know how straight sex works. Oh, no, no. This one is a, a pretty fascinating position. Uh, but is, she's kicking. She's kicking the whole time. And I'm like, you go kick somebody. No, 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 no. But like the direction was to be lively and nobody was like, we can pull her back, right? Um, yeah, but- no, no, no. This sex scene is, uh, while, I, while I do think it is sweet for the sake of the story, the mechanics of it are uh, quite I, I will say it is much better than the sex scene in, in Halloween 3. Right. I, I will say that this, while it was a choice, is better than the sister at the top of the movie who was upstairs for three seconds. Yeah. And then the guy was like putting this like jacket on. It's like, talk to you tomorrow. Oh, and I yeah. was like, that was a uh, oh. quick session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What happened? Because she's like naked and brushing her hair. I'm like, what happened in three seconds? Like, right. was it a microwave date? I need, yeah. I need information. And then like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, at, at least with Linda, like the legs would insist that she, you know, enjoyed herself. Uh, you know, uh, capacity. Well, afterwards she's like, "Oh, that was so good." And I was like, "I mean, I guess, girl, get it." But yeah, and they were content about something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, oh, but, it, but it works. It works. Yeah. Oh, to be. Young. <laughs> I also I I remember the days of being a giggly drunk. Not so much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> legally drunk. Now I'm legally. I'm not giggly. I'm just legally. There you go. <laughs> um, so then, okay, so after they have sex, she, the, the, they did have this really cute uh, moment where she tells, him, she tells him to go get her a beer. I and, like, the, they're cute. I like yeah. them. Like, it is sad to me that they die. I think yeah. they're a cute couple. And he tells yeah. and he tells her, I thought you were gonna get me one. And she just looks at him and he's like, okay, fine. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fair because aside from the driving, she's done everything else to get this night to happen. She talked to the friend who's babysitting. She like called the other friend to make sure the friend who's babysitting was gone. Yeah. She picked which bedroom of this stranger's house to use. Like she's leading this charge so he can get the beer. Yeah, Melissa is, is like a kid. mover and a shaker. She like she will Oh, right. Align the stars to make sure she gets some. Yeah. Regardless of the murder. So, I mean, of course, the parents come home and there's dead people in their house. That's crazy enough. But, like, what if that didn't happen and the parents came home and their bed sheets are just, like, disheveled? And <laughs> oh, yeah. You're like, oh, no. someone had sex in our bed. It's like Goldilocks, but you're like, <laughs> that was one of my no- just right. <laughs> Especially because the laundry is two blocks from the house. So, like, you came over here to the stranger's house, and who was gonna run this laundry two blocks to do it, and then back and forth and back and forth? Who was gonna do this? Annie, Lori, the children? What was the plan? Like, and also, how long are the parents gone? Maybe they're coming back soon. And you're just are like, all of the parents in the same place? Is there like a party? Is there like all the parents are at the Red Rabbit Lounge? That's where they're. You're so right, Trent. Yes. We solved it. Okay. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, this is Nightmare on Fear Street. <laughs> right. So, uh, so Bob is down there, downstairs, getting her a beer. And I guess he hears something. I don't remember what piques his attention. But he starts, like, looking through the doors. And he's like, come out. Uh, I think he thinks it's Annie. And he's like, come out, Annie. And it's not Annie. But he said, come out. So guess what? You did. <laughs> Another horror movie trope. You're always calling for the person that's not. 
That's why in a dark situation, I call for no one. I just leave the situation. Or do like a reverse psychology and be like, Michael Myers? Right. And he's like, or, come out or, now, he knows I'm here. <laughs> or turn a light on. Why would you do that? They couldn't do that with this budget, which is why we have this atmosphere. This is a dark ass movie. For those of you who have not seen it in a while, it is dark. It, it is, is like, <laughs> forgot to pay the light bill a couple months. <laughs> It is, but I do think what they do with the light they have is pretty stunning. I think it's pretty effective. Like, sometimes yeah. when you say that a movie's dark, sometimes it's hard to, like, keep track of who's who and who's where. This movie never struggles with that, which is pretty impressive considering yeah. the budget. So um, he gets killed with the knife through the uh, one knife holding his like whole body. sternum, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a damn good knife. You don't get that from Amazon. That's Cutco. That's Cutco. Diamond bladed. Yeah. Right. And then he goes upstairs. Give it five stars. <laughs> and then he goes upstairs in his little sheet with his with the glasses on. Which yeah, that is very like he planned that. It's not like he's just he goes around it's killing people. Psychological warfare. Yeah. Like that is like if a normal person did that, you'd be like, yeah. Uh, like, I'm not your friend anymore. You know, like, like that is like, it's, he, he commits to the bit for so long that it's mm -hmm. like truly unsettling. I think one of the scariest parts of that scene is watching Linda's face as she has yeah. to deal with, like, he stands there for like a minute. I mean, like, it, it is, it is uncomfortable. Well, and he doesn't even take, she takes the sheet off of him. He never takes it off. Right. She pulls it off while he's strangling, which we'll get to in just a second. So, um, She's freaking out because she thinks it's Bob and Bob's being fucking weird, I guess. Um, and so she gets up and call She turns her back on Bob and the sheet who won't talk to her, which is horror movie rule number one. Don't turn your back until you've confirmed who is who and who's not murdered who. But she's like, you know what, Bob? Fuck this. And turns her back and gets on the phone to be like, hey, Lori. And instead, not Bob is like, I was a murderer because this is a horror movie. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and she gets the worst murder because it's just like boobs out, phone cord on the neck. And it was like this, it almost doesn't belong because the other ones were so not whatever this was. I have no word for it right now. <laughs> yes. But did anyone else see notice the similarities between Linda and his sister? Absolutely, Absolutely undeniable. That's absolutely part of it. And I will say that, like, for a murder where it's, like, boobs out, I thought that it was deliberately done in a way that you're like, this isn't sexual. I, I do think that's an impressive use of nudity. It, yeah. it you have that moment where you're like, no, 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 she's not naked because I'm supposed to, like, weirdly be kinked by this. She's naked because it, she's so vulnerable and she's truly a victim in every sense that's it's tragic yeah and it, it does tie back into her looking like the sister who killed at the top who was yeah. with it and it also ties into him putting on a costume for this one because he wore a costume to that oh one my as well. gosh i hadn't thought about that yeah. parallel so, so we're circles right. but still i was just like i didn't want this for her because everybody else got to die with something on their chest except for the sister at the top yeah. but also if this is her track then it's her track she uses one of the more interesting things about the way they use nudity is she uses her nudity when she thinks it's because you don't see her chest until it's the sheet the ghost michael and the ghost and she pulls it down to be like hey like you want to come get this she uses it to try and 
goat who Bob, who she thinks is trying to fuck with her. And I think when she died, I think she's put on like a button down shirt. She just hasn't buttoned it up. And it's so open. it's open. Yeah. I mean, her boobies are still out, but most of the shots of her are like right above the boobage up. You don't yeah. see a lot of boob. So now Michael has killed all of her friends. And then we go to Mr. U Dr. Useless again. And he suddenly realizes that the car is right down the street. Well, I guess he's just now realized this because he's useless. He is such a lose the forest for the trees character. You know, yes. I mean, like, he, he, he's so honed in on the house that, yeah, he's the yeah, Dr. Useless. That's what, that's what he is. Hear me out. Is Dr. Loomis the old man in all of our lives who focuses on the one thing and won't be shaken? It's like, Grampy, <laughs> we don't need this story right now. And then Grampy's like, I will not be denied. I am 90 years old. You're going to hear all of it. And then the Xerox machine was invented in 19. <laughs> it's like, stop. <laughs> his obsession with Michael is mirroring Michael's obsession with his sister. Whoa. That's what it is. That just fell into place in my head. That's what it is. No, no, no. It, that's, it's still not like the sharpest execution, but that's absolutely, yeah. you're so right. He represents yeah. a mirror version of Michael's obsession. Yeah. No, that's so right. The more human version of what is happening with Michael is Dr. Loomis, because as the sequels happen, we see Dr. Loomis sacrifice lots of people. Oh to my Michael. gosh. And dude, like he is the one, like Dr. Loomis is so obsessed with the idea that Michael is going to return to this house on Halloween night. Loomis is the one who returns to the house on Halloween night. Like Loomis becomes Michael in multiple ways. That's what he's you guys, we solved the movie twice. Twice. Oh, yes. Script analysis. Jeff Pilts. Hashtag analysis. <laughs> so then we go back to Lori, and she's clearly shaken because she just heard her friend probably be murdered. But she's also, this is also the friend that called her chewing earlier. So she's like, Are you fucking with me again? Uh, <laughs> so she decides to go over to investigate with by herself with no weapons, no nothing. She's just like, I guess I'll go see what's up. I would never. There's nothing for me to investigate in anyone's house in the evening after I've seen a creepy man a couple times a day. No, yeah. <laughs> never. Um, and then she goes up and she finds the gory scene. He's painted her a family picture. We've got the friend who was just strangled on the phone, who represents the sister by the mother's headstone in the bed which we know Michael had thoughts about the sister, which is why he stabbed her at the top. Um, we have another friend, Chef, in the cupboard. It's Annie, it's, because I thought it was a weird choice. It's Annie that's the one that's under the tombstone. Annie is the one. Linda is the one in the cloth, in the, in the cupboard. Oh, sure. And so that was a weird choice, too, because they look so similar. I don't understand why she wasn't the one with the tombstone. Yeah. I wonder if Annie reminds him of the mom we didn't see. Sure. I agree, though. I think Linda probably would have made more sense. I will say, though, in general, though, every time I watch this movie, this reveal shocks me. Every time, because I always think she's going to open the door and Michael's going to be there. I don't know why. I always switch the scene in my head with, I always think that the closet scene is coming sooner than it is. And mm -hmm. so I always think that this is the closet scene. And it's not. Yeah. It's this crazy metal, like, it's wild. The... the it always shocks me. It always shocks me. It's a, it's a shocking, disturbing series of images. 
it gets me every time. And to follow that to this film's credit is it never takes the obvious gag, which would be to have Michael jump out of this cupboard or something. It's like, no, let them have a moment and then have Michael come up behind his sister. He's behind her so much during these like last 25 minutes where like, it's just, it's kind of gorgeous. Sometimes they even rise at the same time and you're like, oh shit, no, Lori, get out. <laughs> um, so yeah, she's freaking out and he comes up behind her and goes to stab her, but he misses. I don't, how did he miss her? Yeah, he's not, <laughs> he's not, he's not because he also like her fashion. And I think that's rude. I agree, Michael. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, Michael is not the most accurate with that knife. Uh, no. Take some wild swings. True. So then she. This is the. This is the shot you were talking about earlier, uh, Ben. When she's coming out of the house, having seen yes. her three best friends murdered, and she knows he's after her. And it like Sheree, you have a note about this. And it's so like fucked up. She, she's screaming for someone to help her. She goes to the neighbor's house, and they turn the lights out on her. Yeah. yeah. What 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 really bothers me about this whole moment is that it's so lifelike. How many stories have we read of a woman screaming for help in the street and people are like, no, which is why you're trained to yell fire because people care about a fire more than they care about you. And so like her being on these doors and people like, we don't see this, we're unconcerned. We can give it the face value that it's Halloween and people play gags and they thought it was a gag or we could own it for what we know it is, which is people don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> They're like, we're safe, turn the lights off. <laughs> and meanwhile, this woman's out fighting for her life in the street. I think you just nailed it. I think for a lack of better vocabulary, this is the scariest part of the whole movie to me because mm -hmm. of everything you just said. I fear for her life. I fear for, I mean, like when you think about what she, what she becomes in the, in the reboot, you know, um, this moment is, this whole night is giving her PTSD. But yeah. as somebody who has PTSD, this is like one of the moments that's going to be like a flashback for her. She's she mm -hmm. like she's going to be on like a, a front porch ten years from now and have a flashback where she's running, trying to get into the house, and it's traumatizing. Yeah. It, it's a scary, dark, messed up scene, and it's really really great filmmaking, but it makes you feel horrible. Yeah. It's jarring. What? Jarring. Jarring. Yeah. yeah. So then my phone every time I watch it again. I'm just like, no, not today, please. <laughs> <laughs> so then she runs across the street to go back to Tommy's house and she's banging on the door, which she was smartly locked. Thank you, Lori, for being smart, unlike most of these other people in this place. <laughs> um, but, well, maybe not in hindsight, though, because you can't get in now that Michael's after her. I did not bring keys to go investigate some spooky dark house. She didn't bring anything. She <laughs> didn't bring nothing. Not a flashlight. Guys, <laughs> that's okay. Because who needs keys when you have a potted plant that you can throw at a child's window? <laughs> Way more effective than keys. Right. She finally gets him up and tells him to come along her hand. And he's just very lazily like, oh. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I'll say he gets out of bed pretty fast compared to me. I, I'd be like, yeah, let me check Twitter. <laughs> oh, okay. Yep, I'm on my way. I'm on my. Oh, where are my flip flops? Where are my flip flops? Oh, there they are, there they are. All right. Sorry, Lori. I'm on my way. Hang on. I gotta pee. Yeah. Like. <laughs> like this is Tommy's revenge because she's losing her shit. She's like, ah, help save me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's like, 
hold, please. That's oh. what you get for gaslighting me. Right? <laughs> Next time I tell you the boogeyman, Lori, there's a boogeyman, okay? Who's, um, yeah, who's he was by, by the door. And Lori's like, I'm dead. I, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die tonight. And then he opens it, finally. <laughs> I'm just like, Tommy, you don't deserve Paul Rudd in like 12 years. You don't. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so then she gets in the house and she closes the door, locks it back. And then, but then she, uh, she tells Tommy to go upstairs back to his room and shut the door and lock it. And, but then she sees that the like window door thing is open. Um, and she, oh, she goes to try to call somebody. I'm assuming the police. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, and the, the, he's cut the phone cords. And then she's like freaking out in front of the couch and he pops up behind it, um, tries to stab her again and misses. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she runs upstairs. Um, she shoots him with her sewing needle. True. She does, she's a better aim than he is, I guess. <laughs> I mean, somebody had picked up something in this family. <laughs> and then she goes upstairs and does she tell the kids to run that? No, she hides in the closet first. Because she, she gets up there, she's like, yeah, I yeah. did it. I killed him with my sewing needle, which, I mean, come on, Lori. Come on. I know it's a suburb. I need you to know better. You got to double so, tap. You got to double tap. Right? I know this movie came out double before Zombieland, but you got to <laughs> double tap. Always double tap. Truly. Always. You have to make sure your work is done. But, like, she gets up there, and she's like, it's okay, kids. I killed him. We're fine. And Michael's like, did you? And she's like, no, kids, in the closet, shit. <laughs> and she puts them in a the closet, and then she goes to another closet, which is not the best hiding place in a horror movie. It's a closet. Oh, really? It's the scariest. Especially when you get in there. So she was smart. She opened the balcony, the doors to the balcony, to make it look like she jumped from the balcony, which would you really think that? But also... When she gets in the closet, she's like slamming door like, and like moving hangers around. I'm like, girl, you have to be quiet. <laughs> she oh, yeah, understand yeah. that. <laughs> Michael bursting into this door, moving hangers, reaching for her with a knife is probably one of my favorite parts of this movie because it's, it's claustrophobic. She's got nowhere to go. And you're like, how's she gonna get out? Because clearly that was her only way out. It's where Michael hit. Right. <laughs> And her only weapon is a wire hanger. <laughs> Which, if it had been Mommy Dearest, would not have even been in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but he drops the knife, and she gets it, and stabs him once again, and he falls. She gets out of the closet, and then throws the knife on the ground, because, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> right next to him. Here you go. If you get up, you can use it again. Uh, <laughs> I my horror movie trope I would like to burn is dropping the weapon when you think it's over because it's yeah. never over. No. no. Hold no. on to that thing for dear life. Right? I was just holding it in the sequel. I'd be like, no, this is my knife. I know we're in the hospital. I've been through some shit tonight. This is mine. <laughs> and then she tells the kids to come out of the room and she tells them to run down the street to so-and-so's house and call the police. People shot because she got on the kids' level to send them away because she's tired and stabbed and traumatized. And the kids are running, and she starts to slide up the wall, and you see her brother sliding up on her behind her left shoulder at the same time, and he does that like thing you do in your movement classes where you like reconstruct yourself, 
and he starts to walk after her as she's walking away and you're like oh shit this is about to get real and <laughs> and then it does because straight up reaches for her to choke her because like you know what my knife has not worked my hands will <laughs> this tool has failed me yeah let's go right. back to the drawing board second option the whole time lori <laughs> yeah, i do think that this is a moment where the first time you watch this movie you truly think for a second you're like wow so she fulfilled her promise that she was going to keep the kids safe she's about to die I, I think the first time you watch this movie they they do a really good job of setting up oh my gosh she has that moment where she promises the children they'll be safe. She well, keeps up her end of the bargain. And by the rules of storytelling, she's fair game to die now, you know? And, and I do think that the first time I watched this, I don't know, probably I was like maybe like 11 or 12 or so. I, I remember seeing it, my friends, well, our mutual friend, Danny Lindsay's. <laughs> over. Um, and yeah, I mean, I thought she was dead. I, I, I really did. And I- Because you I, don't I, expect I, Dr. Useless to be useful. Well, right. I mean, that does kind of come out of left field. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe we did because everybody gets to do one thing right and everyone's entitled to one good scare. Okay, that's true. That's a good Doctor job. useful. Doctor. Coming in clutch. <laughs> so, but and before he gets there, though, so he's strangling her and she pulls his mask off. It's the first, it's really the only time, I think, in the entire franchise that we see Michael's face. So, it's kind of cool because it ties it back to the serial killer aspect we've been talking about and that like humans are the worst monsters. And then Dr. Useless shows up and shoots Michael through <laughs> this note made me laugh last night when I was watching it. Um, the French balcony doors Michael just got shot through his huge sign that this wasn't really filmed in Illinois. <laughs> it's not. I lived in Illinois for about three and a half years in Chicago. Well, that and that would get a little cold in the winter. Oh, right. No. Lake, Lake effect. Lake effect. Lake effect. <laughs> yeah. Small town Illinois gets, yeah, th that, <laughs> it's a very California, well, even like the housekeeper's quarters being on the other part of the yard. Like, yeah, think about right. that in the winter. Yeah. yeah. You can get through that and all the snow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, he gets shot through the, the doors and falls off the balcony and um, Loomis goes to look over the balcony and he's gone. And then I want to talk about the very, very end because it's saying something and I don't know that it ever quite lands for me because we are getting these just single establishing shots of various houses with Michael breathing. Mm -hmm. And the closest I can come to is just that we are supposed to be left with a feeling of this is not over. This monster is still out there. The illusion of safety has been shattered. You now see these houses differently than you did earlier. No. Do you think that's what it's trying to say? I'm kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that, and then the fact that this could happen to anyone. Yes. That's Which a good is, point. That's a good, any house on this street, that's a really great point, Trent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like this is what sells this movie for me and also ties it to the reason why I also jumped from Freddy Krueger back to Michael Myers as my imaginary friend as a child. <laughs> It's because they're giving me these worlds in which people in the suburbs are also not safe. <laughs> well, that is the first original Halloween. All Yay. right. Let's do some hot takes. Well, I'll go, I'll go with mine. So mine is a lot of people claim or say that Laurie Strode is their favorite final girl. If I just take this film and this film alone, I don't like Laurie Strode as a final girl. 
Uh, well, no, it's not that I don't like her. She's not my favorite. There are more compelling arguments elsewhere in the genre. Well, because, yeah, because one of my favorite things about the final girls are that they, they overcome by fighting back. And a lot of what Lori does in this film, that she does get stronger in sequels, especially in the second sequel and then in the newest ones they're making now. But in this one, after she finds her friends dead, I mean, she, it's a lot of like, ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, and even the parts where she does fight back, it's very dog in a cage energy. Like, it's, yes. it's like she's like literally cornered in the closet mm-hmm. and she stabs back. It, and so my, my, I totally, actually, I totally agree with you, Trent. I think what people confuse for loving her as a final girl is loving the incredible movie star and talent that we have in, in Jamie Lee Curtis, who's like yeah. one of our national treasures. <laughs> and, I, and, I totally and if agree. I include the whole franchise, I, she moves up in my ranking. Um, and I do have one, I have one other t- hot take. Even though I love these, this new franchise they've kind of got going with the new Halloweens, I still prefer the idea that she is his sister because they don't go that route. That's right. They actually specifically undid that. Yes. Like she's, there's a moment where they say like, isn't he your brother? And she's like, that was a rumor, but no, that's not true. Yes. Something like that. The, make that yeah. the filmmaker said that she is not in their, in their world in their reboot world. She is not, they're not related that he just right. came and this is was rando. That's so much more like the strangers. I need to rewatch the last one. It's good. I, I, I mean, it's still, it's a great film. I just think storytelling wise, it's more compelling and interesting that she is, they're related. I, I, I hear that argument big time. Uh, can I hear my hot take? Yes. yes. Yes, please. So I think my hot take that I gather from this movie is that you can make an all time great film without good actors. Because I think that most of the actors in this movie are subpar. They're not good actors. Jamie Lee Curtis is a full-blown certified movie star. And there's a reason why she's the only person. I know Don Pleasant's had like a career, but like he's like from another era. It's he's not like a great actor. And you have Jamie Lee Curtis, you have one superstar, and then a bunch of people who basically never did anything ever again, and you kind of understand why. And I'm no disrespect. Great job in being a part of one of the greatest movies ever. But this proves that if you have a great script, a great director, and a great score. You can make an all-time great movie without the actors. You, you can do it. And uh, I, I think that's kind of a hot take as an actor myself, but acting is not the only element of filmmaking that matters. My new hot take, because we sort of did mine at the top of the show, um, my new hot take is that the reason this is so popular, this specific movie in the specific franchise, is because deep down it's a family drama, mm-hmm. right? As someone who comes from a big family, I had seven siblings, only one other sister who's two years younger than me. These family dynamics are not unheard of. All right, so Sheree, what we got going on next week? Next week, we're gonna do Halloween 2. Surprise, right? Because like, who does that? The sequel. <laughs> um, we're gonna have back Mr. LaRock Payton. Um, AKA LaBob, AKA LaCroix, AKA Larry. Um, <laughs> Lots of L names, I'm just saying. Any L names. Should he be in this Halloween? Should we, we record it? <laughs> All right, so yes, Halloween 2 next week. We're excited. Make sure you follow us on social media. We may have some really 
exciting announcements coming up soon. So, you know, keep your eyes out for that. Um, again, make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. Just take a few seconds and write a short little review and tell people why you like listening to us. It would be extremely helpful. Um, thank you so much, Ben, for coming and doing Guys, this. Thank today. you for having me. Seriously, I've, this was so great and so fun and exciting. And uh, I'm just, I'm really a big fan of the, of the show. And I, I love you guys and I miss you guys so much. And uh, so this has been really nice and fun for me. So thank you. I consider this a, a favor. So thank you. For sure. Yes. Yeah, so we'll have you back sometime in the future. We're Please. sure. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even sooner than we know. But like, who am I to say? Who am I to say what happens in Halloween month? It's a spooky <laughs> month. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Uh, I just want to kind of shamelessly plug your fans might like I a friend and I some friends and I actually a couple of UCM theater alums uh, a few years back made a short horror film called Comb that's on YouTube. Um, and it's about banshees. And it's, it's like a kind of a campy uh ho like horror short it's like 11 minutes long but uh check check that out it's called yeah it's like c-o-m-b all right again thank you all for listening make sure you stay fierce out there bye